Okay. <clears throat> Welcome to Talking Points. I'm Dr. Michelle, and I'm really excited about today's guest. But before we get to Aquaeus, I want to first shout out William Patterson University, especially Yolini Gonell, the Director of Diversity and Inclusion and the Black Cultural Center. And so thank you guys for being a part of this journey with us. Thank you. Right? So Aquaeus Kelly, teacher, uh, curator, founder of A Lover's Ambition, of course, your second vice president of The Word on a Move. How does all that kind of combine to this idea of being an educator, a teacher, a coach, a, you know, just someone that's well-rounded like yourself? Yeah, so a lot of times when I look at what I'm involved in or what people are involved in in general, we can look at it as a, a practice or vocation. And I feel that regardless of what we do, it could be more than one thing as long as those vocations and practices align with the bigger mission, what I like to call the social mission, that's how we can all make it work together. So at the end of the day, whether I'm in the classroom as an educator or whether I'm in a meeting or whether I'm talking to a potential client or I'm advising or consulting in some capacity, the mission for me is always the same. It's just wanting to empower and inspire people to be the best version of themselves. So whether it's a student, whether it's someone I'm talking to on the street, it really doesn't matter. I just want to see people elevate and, and attain and aspire and reach those uh, elite levels that they deem uh, are important and significant and meaningful for them. I love that. And what you're su suggesting is all of those things are, it's just who you are. So where did that start for you before you even knew the labels? Because that's part of you. That's just you and your core. How did that come to be? When did you realize that these were all the pieces that made you Aquaeus? So from a young age, I've always been pretty independent, uh, independent thinker, independent builder. I always think about my days staying home from school when I was sick mm. and and finding something to do with my time. So even though I was sick, I would be building Legos and creating, um, putting things together with pops, popsicle sticks. And I was always curious, even to this day, I had a Zoom meeting. We have Zoom meetings from time to time, every two weeks with my family, um, you know, close family, extended family, cousins, aunts, everyone. And one of my aunts, Aunt Marlene, she always reminds me of how curious I was as a child. So even if I wanted to forget, she always reminds me that I was always asking questions. I always had that serious look mm. on my face, that inquisitive look. So for me, I feel it started at a very young age and just being in tune with that energy and that determination and commitment to do something from a very young age. I love the idea of it being a part of you because I think it translates beautifully into being an educator. I say teacher, but teacher is, I think when we look at these terms, teacher, I feel is very spiritual, right? And so I, I definitely want to include that because I think there's a piece of that just because that teacher element is, is kind of embodied in you. And then the educator aspect of it is that practitioner, the technical ideology of what education is and I think the two when you really understand it in that way it is a dynamic relationship that you have with those that you're trying to teach or educate 
So my question is, how do you see that um, happening when it comes to your, your students in particular? How do you fuse who you are, that curiosity that you have inside of you into ensuring that your students are also curious as well? Well, it's one thing that I remember sharing with you the other day about it's difficult to inspire our students if as teachers and educators, we're not living inspired lives. So one thing I can, and it starts with promising myself, I always promise myself to lead and live an inspired life because I know my students are watching me, right? So that's one of the reasons why on forums and platforms like this, I decide not to curse or I decide not to use certain language. Not that I never use it, right? However, my discretion and discernment, knowing that, all right, my students are watching me, parents are watching me, different people are watching me right now. I have to be aware of that. And I am aware of that. So I, I believe that, you know, it's important to really just lead by example, right? Mm -hmm. While still understanding the human aspect and component of ourselves, knowing that will make mistakes and thinking about okay when we do make these mistakes how will we come back from that mistake to build character mm -hmm. so that even mistakes are experiences where we can learn from so that's what i feel is most powerful i was going to say it is powerful and i think students appreciate that because i think back in the day i know when i was coming up and you look at your teachers you thought they were so flawless and you never really quite saw who they were yeah. um but i think now just in the in the whole uh just this new generation of educators and even some before us a little bit after us has this idea that you can be your most authentic self in the classroom and there's a level of humility that you have so that your students can feel um like their their mistakes are acceptable as long as you can learn from them yeah. So I think that is really powerful, especially when you're able, there have been times when I was teaching where I would um, apologize if I got something wrong or if I said something wrong and it allowed for them to realize that I care. Like an apology is almost a blessing of, I care enough about you to acknowledge my error. Yeah. And I think when you're, when you're able to be that human with them, they see their, their ability a little bit, um, I don't know, easier. They're able to do a little bit more and they, they, because they feel like they can make mistakes and not really worry about what that looks like. So it's humanizing. It's a humanizing yeah. experience. And, you know, when we think of what it means to be humanizing and we, when we think of certain labels, you spoke about labels early in terms, mm -hmm. certain labels, idols, people that, you know, we, we celebritize over, people that we are fans of. I've always believed that the more we can humanize, the more we can inspire people to be the best they can be. Because when we, when we see ourselves at a certain level, we're not, not necessarily accessible, but not approachable maybe. It's like, oh, this person is too good for me. And now we feel less than, right? So that's something I've always wanted to avoid. And that's, what determines the way I move and how I move is I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to be seen as someone who is not approachable. Right. Uh, I had a zoom, a zoom meeting yesterday and the, 
the young lady who I met with, she said that she thought I would say no to meeting on Zoom. I'm like, why would I ever say no? The, the least I can do is just meet with someone on Zoom and get to know them, you know? So that's another promise that I make to myself is as long as I have the time, then the least I can do is at least pick up the phone and have a conversation at least one time, right? Yeah. So that, that one time then determines where we go from there, right? Yeah. Because not everything is, is copacetic, but at least once, right? At least once. Because I want to be the person that I wanted to access when I was younger. Um, and that's, again, that's what keeps me going is always looking back, looking forward, and then analyzing where I am in the moment. I love the idea of wanting to be the person that you can be accessible because there was a time where you wanted access to certain people. And there was a point that you made a moment ago, you can be accessible and not be approachable. Yeah. And that is huge because I don't know if people are self-aware enough or care enough um, or they may care enough. And like yourself, you make sure that you have a fine line and a balance between the two. My question, um, I know that you, you teach at-risk student populations. Every school, no matter how affluent um, it is or how high-performing it is, has subgroups of students that are at-risk. You teach in a, in, a, in a school that is, you know, you have a, a great deal of students that um, that have, you know, that struggle in certain areas academically. How does that look? How do you shape their instruction? How do you support the struggle for those types of students? So I always try my best to see where they're coming from, from an instructional standpoint. So now we're going to get into pedagogy, you know? So from an instructional standpoint, one thing I started doing is just asking them, what do you understand about this problem? What do you not understand about this problem, right? So through doing that, they have to answer, right? Because if there's something that they don't understand, there has to be something that they do understand. Otherwise, the problem wouldn't be in front of them. Like we're not, we're not presented with problems unless we're equipped in some way to start solving it. That's how I see it. So in order for a problem to be in front of us, we have to have of reach that destination, right? So my students reached the destination of being in fifth grade. So now you're looking at these problems. In our life, if I run into a problem, if I'm driving and there's a problem on the highway, I, re I reached that problem because I can drive. If I couldn't drive, I wouldn't have encountered that problem. So that's how I look at it, is you got, you, you got far enough to reach this problem. Now, what do you know about this? What do you not know about it? And then we can just build from there. I like that because you have enough just to understand or at least dissect it. Even if you can't um, solve it, you yeah. should be able to at least acknowledge it mm -hmm. <laughs> and then start identifying the elements of it that you can explain. Yeah. Yeah. How does that work for you? How do you, how do students, I guess, receive that type of, of support? If there's one thing I can say that my students 
might say about me when I'm not around is that I help to motivate and inspire them to be mm. better. Um, Cause I, I told this to another friend of mine where when we think of content curriculum, that's really not that important. It's less important. I feel the most important thing we can do is teach our students how to learn, right? Because once we learn and know how to learn, we can teach ourselves anything. So if you want to do science, do science. That's fine. Math, fine. Have a dandy time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> go, and, go and do that. <laughs> However, the actual skill of use, utilizing resources and asking the right questions. And instead of asking me, what does this mean? I'll look at you like, yo, you, you know what to do to access that information. Right? <laughs> and I remember having students tell other students like, you know what to do. Mr. Kelly says, look it up. So look it up. Right. And the other day I gave a student an assignment, one of my students. So the student happened to not do so good on an assessment, focusing, focusing on compare and contrast, right? RL 5.3, I think it is. And <laughs> you know, those, you know now, those standards. Now we're digging into the trenches right now. So all the teachers out there, this is your part right now. So RL 5.3, compare and contrast. And I can tell she didn't give forth her best effort. I'm like, yo, we can't have this. So we went over everything. And I just asked questions like, what do you feel about this? Do you feel you gave forth your best effort? Read this back to me, read it back to me. And then they're correcting themselves. So it's like, when we, when we speak about inner city at-risk students, a lot, of, a lot of what needs to be fixed, you know, it's not, it's not them. It may be their approaches, how they look at things, but it's the effort. Like, yo, of course, if you're not reading it, you're not going to excel. So make the effort to read it, read it over. So let's, let's go to that though because you said that if your students were to describe you they would say that you inspire them now that's where we need to kind of stick at like that point right there is huge because we talk about students that are inner city what we deem or they deem at risk or more so because of performance yeah um uh bands and, and and their ability to I guess compare with other areas and I and I guess I use ability loosely because everyone has the ability they have the capacity to do it but it's that inspiration factor and I know that you're not just you don't consider yourself just the teacher just an educator you consider yourself a coach as well how do you how do you make that happen and what does that look like in your classroom yeah so this goes back to just my past my childhood I didn't go to school for education. I wasn't a traditional education major. I didn't pursue teaching as a career. So now that I'm in the classroom, I'm really just taking my background and bringing that into that environment, right? So I've always been into sports, younger, growing up, competing, mindset, conditioning, just next level i was literally just listening to a tim tim grover on on a podcast and tim grover for those of you who may not know was michael jordan's trainer for like 15 years so when we talk about the best of the best like next level kind of stuff that's always what i've been about whether it's me applying it to the classroom 
me applying it to working in music, me applying it to phone sales at Dish Network, me applying it to working at Home Depot, it doesn't matter. I can take these skills and apply it to whatever I choose to do. And I tell people, we, again, inclusive, we can take these skills and apply it to whatever we want to do. Yeah. Yes. So in essence, it's teaching them to pull. And it reminds me of some of the things my dad and I used to do because I played basketball. And so I get exactly what you're saying when you when you kind of have that competitive mindset, which I think is very powerful when you are, um, you know, involved in whatever areas of your life, professionally, yeah. personally, socially, so on and so forth, as long as you're doing it in a way that is um, not a detriment to others. Right. Yeah. So. I know when I used to be on a court with him and he would, I would, you know, sh shoot my shot and he would say for me to remember if I missed it, how did it feel when you made it before? So a lot of times it's pulling from the past in order for you to be able to move forward. Yes. And so what, what it would do is it would, I would have that mental memory. It would exercise that mental memory, that muscle to do exactly the same thing I did before when I was successful in order to accomplish it the next time. Yeah. And so whenever I wanted to pull from it, I would just pull back from when I had success before. And yeah. I think when you do what, when you say what you say, where you pulled from other experiences that you had, these are successful experiences. It may not be the same, but you can utilize the same approach in a different context. Mm -hmm. I think it makes it more tangible for young people or for people in general when they're learning or when they're trying to achieve a goal. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So do you believe that all students can learn? I believe all people can learn. I love that. Yeah. What would you... how, how to go about doing it is, is a science. It is. And so, what would you say the science is? It's a science I'm still uncovering. The first thing that comes to mind is a video that I watched on YouTube. A professor broke it down. Pretty in a pretty in a pretty simple way right so let's think about foreign when something is foreign a foreign language we don't know it at all it's foreign we don't know anything about it mm -hmm. however through exposure to that thing that's foreign what's foreign then becomes familiar right so through exposure we move from foreign to familiarity right it's foreign it's familiar i've seen it i see it again it becomes more and more familiar and then from familiar to mastery is where the work really comes in. So that's when we have to apply, practice, apply, practice. And then eventually it was foreign. It became familiar. We practiced, we applied, we practiced, we applied again and again and again and again. And now I mastered this, right? So what's next? Something else that's foreign. All right. Mm -hmm. Familiar, mastery. What's next? And it's just building and building and building. Where did you get that paradigm? So I got that paradigm from a video I watched on YouTube, a professor from maybe the University of Chicago. I'm not sure I can share share the Absolutely. video. I can find the video, share it with everyone. Absolutely, everybody. I love that because it's, I think what you're suggesting, and, and that has been my experience um, teaching, especially students that I wouldn't even say struggle to learn. I think it's going back to being motivated. And I think being a coach is really the goal yeah. when you're in the classroom uh, because they have the capacity 
It's just a matter of, do you have the capacity to be a coach is, is really the question. So when you say that, that construct, the foreign, the familiar to mastery, and then that in between familiar and mastery is where the work goes in, what you're suggesting is simplicity. Mm -hmm. I think that's where young people do well when things are simplified. When you simplify what learning looks like, when you, when you simplify the process, I think that's where you get a lot of buy-in. Yeah. The, uh, the nonsensical jargon that, you know, people want to sound so intelligent and, yes. you know, so above, as you said earlier, all these things are connecting. You want to be approachable. You yeah. want to be accessible. So if you can break it down in simplistic terms where students can have those aha moments or people can have aha moments, you're going to get buy-in. Yeah. You know? So my question to you is, do you think all educators can educate? No. Um, like, I, I'm sure five years from now, I'll look back and say at the time I couldn't educate. So it's, it's, um, it's a process, just like what you mentioned. And we have to think about what is education in terms of outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So what is the outcome we're looking for? There are different dimensions of education. Maybe we can teach something, but how do we know that someone actually learned something from it? We don't. There are a lot of things that I won't know until something is applied appropriately the right way. I mean, we give assessments and that gives us some, some information. However, is that real education? Saying that we learned this and we performed well on a test, we passed the test. Um, how long-standing and sustainable is that? So there are many different dimensions to what I believe is education from a worldview kind of perspective. Uh, education can come from experience and, and going through certain things. Did we learn from this upset? Did we learn from this heartbreak? What did we learn from it? So I just try to stay as open-minded to learning as much as I can. I feel that the best educators learn, whether they even consider themselves an educator. There's some magnificent educators that don't even consider themselves educators, right? So again, it goes back to what is an educator. It may tie to one of those things where maybe we can't even call ourselves educators. Maybe the people who learn from us are only the ones who can actually call us an educator, right? Who says I should even be calling myself an educator? So I'm, I'm always I'm, I'm thinking- I'm really, really spiritual on what you're saying. And I know what you're saying is, is, deep, is deeper than, and I think that's what makes you an educator. And I, and I mean that, and I know when I first um, saw you practicing, I saw it. And you, it's like, it's, you just can feel it. 
and and it's it's not a checklist it's not we did this now we can move on to that um it's truly understanding this i use the term pedagogy for those who um know it but for those who don't it is literally the art of teaching it's yeah. art it's an art form and when educators speak in the way that you're speaking about it being a continuous learning process and that you're always reshaping what you're doing because you're learning from what you're applying to your your pupils and you're making adjustments in accordance to the people that are in front of you yeah and it's ever changing and when you have that mindset and you're not held to a confine when you're not held to okay we did that okay i think that's where you get the title you you you're you're honored. It's bestowed on you to be called an educator. I, I really do because I've known, I've seen it too many times where people are like deer in headlight waiting for you to tell them what they need to do next. And, yeah. and that's not, that's not an educator. That is someone that is in a classroom, um, babysitting young people, yeah. in my opinion. So that, that, that ties a lot to the theme that I shared with you when it comes to taking ownership of our learning is I wanna make sure that I'm pushing people to go out there and ask those questions and go out there and experience those moments so that you can really realize and appreciate what it feels like to learn. So, Learning is appreciation as well, because we can then take that insight and that insight will forever be a gift for us to live with. That's what I feel true. is the true essence of learning as opposed to, again, me telling you, I wanna, I wanna develop leaders, creatives, and revolutionary people. There's no way to do that from taking a, a traditional approach, right? So a traditional approach will never yield revolutionary results, essentially. And that's the only thing I care about. I love that because it suggests that the traditional is teaching young people not only confines, but fear. Yeah. Fear of, and fear is debilitating. Yeah. And that's what I see when I, when we discuss the contrast between the edu the teachers that, um, or the title teachers that aren't educating or really teaching versus those who don't even want, want their pupils, I should say, rather they want their pupils to say, you are a teacher, you are an educator because I've learned this and yeah. I've been able to apply it this way. There's a contrast between, and, and they both exist. Uh, so when I think of that, I say, you know, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a spiritual thing. Like it's, it's not just X's and O's. And what happens is that when you teach that way, students are fearful of thinking outside of the box and they're fearful of making mistakes. They're fearful of learning from mistakes. And in order to be an evolutionary, you have to be willing to face a fear yeah. and, and go over those hurdles. So what would you, I guess, 
what would be your advice to someone that has the title teacher and is fearful, they're, they're checking off boxes, they're waiting for directives, they're not able to really just do it. Yeah, waiting for directives. I, I love when you said that. That's why I'm smiling right now. Mm. I always try to think ahead of what's to come, right? To a point where if I was to give anyone advice, we want to put ourselves in the position of whoever we may have to report to, right? So of course we won't know what everything looks like, but the more we can understand a superintendent's role, the more we can understand a principal's role, the more we can understand the supervisor's role, the more value we can give them, right? So this year, my third year, I'm helping out in ways that help to provide value to those who I report to, you know, whether it's a simple email, some suggestions, feedback, sharing a few things that were on my mind, backing that up with evidence, um, using something that based on what they said in a meeting can help them do their job easier, things like that. It's all about adding value. In order to, before we can add value, we have to listen. We have to sit back and listen to the needs of others you know we spoke about the white space we spoke about pain points like what are the pain points of people if we know that someone is having difficulty doing this and we have the insight and resources to go about alleviating that difficulty then why not go about helping them to alleviate the difficulty or better yet eradicate it <laughs> you know? yeah so, yeah yeah I love that. And I think what you're in, and just from the administrative perspective, I think it's also important that administrative leaders, especially from the superintendent down, has a clear vision that takes the entire infrastructure three to five years out. Yeah. It's, it's not, let's figure this out as we go. And when you see that you, you're only fostering that fear that a lot of our educators have. And then what's happening is it's also now trickling down to students. Yeah. So if that top doesn't have it right and isn't savvy enough to ensure that the other part, whether it's the um, district level administrators or the school level administrators have it right, then the educators are really just trying to figure it out as well. The teachers are really trying to figure it out as well. I think it's really important that, like you said, it's not just about what are the teachers doing or not doing, but what are the administrators, what are, what are they looking at? What do they see as in essential? What is the data saying? What is the population saying? What are the needs of the population that's in front of them? You got to, like you said, think ahead. Think five steps ahead, 10 steps ahead of what you're, what you're trying to do for those stakeholders that are involved in that process. Yeah, it's, it's a systematic approach. And right now, me being where I am as a teacher, I understand that my role is to be the instructional leader. So I have to set the tone for my tone for my classroom. And this was the first year I've had time to really have the information I need to create that framework. Noticing 
things that I would like to fix and adjust from a systematic level and just applying that to my classroom. So right now the focus is on instructional accountability. And what does that look like? It's a partnership between the teacher and the student, right? Primarily. Now, there are many different components, support staff, parent communication that are important. Mm -hmm. However, at the end of the day, the student has to sit in the middle of their learning, right? Regardless of parents, even regardless of the teacher at times. The teacher's significant. However, the student has to show up. I don't think we're speaking about this enough. We're doing things to come up with possible excuses as to why a student can't do this. I don't feel that's helping, it's hindering because we're not tapping in to the true potential of what that student may be able to do. You know what you're suggesting. So overcome those, overcome those obstacles and hurdles instead of trying to support the obstacle, let's just overcome it. Figure out a way to overcome it. I'm sure there's somewhere out there, someone out there in the world who, have, who has been through these same obstacles who has overcome it. Let's figure out who those people are yeah. and, and do what we need to do to overcome it. It's, a, it's, it's also that psychosocial element when you look at students that are in these um, socioeconomically disadvantaged environments yeah. or um and generally to be it's not also always a race thing it you know it's you know people want to say you know this group of of students um are struggling because they're in a particular race however if you really look at what's going on the relationship between the race and socioeconomics is really the is the issue and socioeconomics also discusses what the environmental factors are and their exposures and that ability to be street smart and savvy and then having to transition that mindset into a very confined space of tradition because a lot of classrooms are not thinking like you are um, where it is that checklist kind of ideology of okay we got this now we move on oh you're behind oh sorry all of them are, are ahead, so we're gonna just keep on going, even though I still don't know what the issue is with you, because I'm not quite tapping into the psychosocial aspect of what's wrong. I don't quite understand the environmental factors. I really don't know what you're doing in your household because I'm not even considering how that's playing a fact, how, how that's playing a role in your ability to learn what I'm trying to teach you. I know you can do it, but I'm not really doing what I can to ensure that it's happening for you because I wanna make sure that the masses are ahead of the game because the masses aren't struggling with those social, social cycle um, uh, ideologies and they're not um, you know, dealing with the environmental factors. And we have a great deal of money in a household where we're able to feed the rest of the family every day without having to worry about the next meal. So I think what happens is when we think in this very linear and, and just, like as if we have blinders on for what yeah. education looks like for young people, there are gonna be subgroups of students that are dealing with those issues that are just not going to get it. Not because they can't, it's because there's a certain level of care, discernment, 
and um, flexibility and patience you have to have in order to, to foster that in students. That's yeah. why I love your approach. That's why I think that you're having the su success that you're having. Whereas I do know that even with that methodology, it requires, it does require professionals and it also requires extra resources for, like you said, people that have gone through that same process as young people, but were able to overcome it in order to help them along in the process. What would you say is the, is the culprit behind it? Or at least what do you see as not the culprit, but the, um, the symptom, like you're seeing this symptom in this group of students. This is, this is an ongoing symptom. Lack of belief. Mm. Hands down. Cause when I really uncover everything while helping students, I can sense it. They've told it to me and I've had students say, you know, thank you for helping me to believe in myself. Things like that. Like I, every time you say something like that, I literally get like a goosebump go down my left arm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's, it's lack of belief. And when we think of adults, we look at, I can look at certain people in the eye and tell that they don't believe in themselves. Right? So that's why I feel that connection is so strong. And I've spent a lot of time with myself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I would say that I probably spent more time with myself than the average person my age. Right? Mm -hmm. And through that, I've learned a lot. I'm continuing to learn a lot. But one thing that I feel pretty sure with is who I am and what I stand for and the ability to look someone in the eye and tell them this is what's going to get done, period. That or the ability to look at someone in the eye and say, you're lying to me right now. <laughs> like you're not gonna do it, right? And of course there are a ton of things I'm still working on, but that's one of the things where I, I feel as though I can look into people's souls at times and I can tell there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And time is a natural healer. Mm -hmm. So there have been things that have happened, happened over time and after an allotment of time, you know, someone would, would say, oh, this is what happened. This is how I felt whether it's five years later, 10 years later. So I just let time go by and make sure that I do my piece as best as I can. And then just let time handle the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Not just a coach in the, I guess, profession, but just in life. In life, hands down. Mm -hmm. Like everything I do is for the art of life. Like profession, vocation, that all falls within the art of life. Love that. Yeah, so for me, it's all about the art of life. As I'm looking outside right now, looking at the leaves on the trees, looking at the construction, looking at the sky, even on a cloudy day, life in itself is poetry. Yes. Like the art of life, everything around us, I'm absorbing everything around me when i'm out in public when i go to the city when i go to different cities when i'm on flights when i'm looking at the water when i'm laying down on a beach the art of life is what inspires me day to day 
Love it. Even in the most difficult, the most difficult, treacherous, treacherous moments, right? Mm-hmm. I still find the inspiration in that, you know? The most treacherous yeah. moments is probably, and, I, and it sounds probably opposite, but it really is so beautiful. It's that those moments where it just seems, I've had those moments <laughs> and they are so powerful. It, 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 it's the root of a great deal of inspiration. And like you said, uh, just being, you know, intuitive about yourself, about others, like you start to really be in that space of reflection. Yeah. And I think it's powerful as long as you are getting the proper dose of, I'm feeling this way, but um, I understand it is a part of my development. Yeah. Like a lot of people are missing, and that's where a lot of people get into a really bad depression or, you know, it becomes a bit dangerous because they're not quite seeing it in the next step. They're not seeing that this is necessary to really evolve into the complete person that they're going to need to be at that next level because it's going to happen again. You just got to keep utilizing that as a resource of strength, you know? Yeah. Like what you said, it's going to happen again, just become stronger. So the next time it happens, you've seen this before. Like there've been moments where I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I've seen this before. Yep. You know? So yep. I just get better and better at handling it. It's, yes. it's a cycle. So, yeah. And, and I love how that's bleeding into what we said earlier, too, with the education, how it's you said that about the students, you know, you get to a light of your, you get to a problem that student should have enough from the past to utilize to get a sense of what this problem means. Yeah. And that's just like yeah. that's poetry. Yeah. Tapping into prior knowledge. As, yeah. like, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. So what do you think the future of education looks like considering, I mean, this, we have situations now with the quarantine, which is now, but it's ongoing. We still have to continue to develop wherever we are. What do you think it's looking like for us now with education in the future? Well, it's one thing to think about what it looks like. It's another thing to, I guess, imagine Mm. what it looks like so i want to imagine right now in regards to what i would like it to look like so what i feel it should look like is and i think you said this you know people who are just in the center of culture you know whether you're an activist whether you're an artist someone who has a a great worldview of what's happening as as a leader in the classroom as an instructor and they can bring in so many different elements so mm-hmm. with virtual instruction what i feel is an amazing is amazing i haven't made the opportunity to do so yet is we can access anything now if i want to bring in a guest speaker google meet we could bring in a guest speaker who's in their office somewhere love it you can have a lesson <laughs> there right yes so those are some things that come to mind is education should be at the center of communities, right? Community schools, and be at the center of the world where we have educational institutions that house the, that are the hub of the community, 
right? Where elementary schools interface with middle schools, high schools, colleges, you know, professors interface with teachers, professionals interface with professors and educators. And it's just a holistic community. Love it. Knowledge. Yep. Instruction. Love it. That's what I see. I love it. Yeah. And I think that if, if that infrastructure was taken as seriously as it should, um, you know, it would. It just, to me, makes sense. I think we have enough intellectuals involved in this process where I don't see why it hasn't already started. Yeah. I mean, it's a, at a small scale. Like, they try to introduce career technical education into schools, and it's really, like, almost like a like you're blowing out a candle. Like it's so small. It's not, it's not, it needs to be more like a forest fire yeah. of an effort happening, you know, and it's, it's really not doing what it should. And it's taking off in a very incremental, or I wouldn't even call it incremental. It's scarce. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't know if the investment is there and it, it may have to start with um, community leaders seeing their, themselves in the light of being an educator or a potential educator. You don't have to have the, the schooling um, or the certificates. You didn't have it going, going in, but that's what I think. I think when people think about it later, like, you know what? Not everybody, but there's, I noticed with certain individuals, two of my sisters are educators and they went alternate route. Yeah. And when I listen to them and I see how they operate, I say, that is what educators do. They, there's a love for the people they're servicing, number one. And then, and then with that, and I think that's what activists are. They love the people they're servicing. Yeah. They're, at, they're, they're there to ensure that their voices are heard and that they have agency. And so that to me is the root of the future of education. The question is, is everyone on board to see that it happens? Yeah, that's where the question lies and that's where the work lies as well. Yeah. As you were speaking, it took me back to a few things we shared in the past in regards to building a school. What does that look like? And sometimes I think of what would what would that look like guerrilla style? Pretty much meaning mm. I, or better yet, we, a, a team of people recruit, let's say 20 students. We speak to 20 parents like, listen, this is the vision. Let's sit back. Let's let's all create buy-in. So literally, like building a, a, a organization, building a team. You have a general manager. You have a coach. You have the different players. Imagine just sitting in a living room, right? A team of school builders, uh, community members, parents, and then ultimately the players who are the students. All need that buy-in. All all sharing that voice, right? All in the same room together. Like this is what the children want. This is what the parents want for the children. This is what the, the educators, the leaders are, are want to provide. We all get on the same level. Just start off small, 20 students, right? 20 parents buying, start that community small. This is what we're doing. This is what worked. And then eventually it'll build. Maybe it's five, maybe it's 10 but literally creating that system from the bottom. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is, I'm getting goosebumps again. <laughs> it's all right. This is good. I think if you can recruit five 
people that are just like that. I'm not going to say just like you because that dynamics of who we are is what makes it wonderful. But when I say just like you, that, that advocacy aspect of yeah. infusing that into education, that coaching potential and all that. And I recruit five people and we put them on a conf a conference to see what happens and then see where that goes. Of course, we'll have an outcome. You and I can discuss what that outcome would be in alignment with what you already proposed just a moment ago, but just us kind of get a better sense of what direction and see what happens. Cause I really do believe that that gorilla approach, which I like that terminology for it is what it's going to take to make it happen. Yeah. It, it, it has, it has to come at a grassroots level. I noticed grassroots things that, um, that are strong and there's sustainability in it because of the people that are invested in it. It's, it may take some time, but it, it's that it's almost, it doubles. It's almost like you're squaring it. Yeah. As time goes on, it just keeps squaring. And I want that to kind of be the, the, the progression. So if we can talk about that, um, just in detail, it's just like kind of write it out, figure yeah. out what we're going to do with that. Let's see what we, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens with that. I think it's too much potential in that. Yeah. You yeah. know, there are a lot of people who want to start schools. I've been a part of a lot of conversations about it. And a lot of people want to fix the problem that they see in education, hands down. You know, so mm. everyone sees it. It's just a matter of those people who are gonna help, going to help to lead. Yeah. The change. Yeah. Yeah. You can't keep hurting these kids long. This is not an assembly line, and that's what it seems. It feels. It feels that way, and it's not fair to the culture. Is not fair to the community because what in what absolutely absolutely happens over time is the community becomes what the education level was and the quality of their education. And yeah. they wonder why there's so much poverty. Well, go back to the school system and you, you'll find it right there, you know? So yeah, I appreciate it. Any, anything you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm really, one of my focuses right now is to really shift mindset and the way we go about thinking about what may limit us and what we're truly capable of. Um, mm -hmm. mm. I just have, like there's tons I can speak on, but right now for some reason, like focus comes to mind, dedication comes to mind commitment comes to mind these are things that have always come come to mind for anyone who knows me but yeah i like in regards to where i sit today it has to be attributed to everything that i've done to get here right so before being a teacher there was uber and we spoke about those darker moments not that Uber was a dark moment. It was a great opportunity. However, it was a grind. It was a hustle. And that's what enabled me to get to where I am now. And again, it goes back to work ethic. 
discipline, waking up 4 a.m. in the morning, whether it's snowing, raining, it doesn't matter, right? And there were dark, lonely nights on the road, mm -hmm. driving back from the city, driving through Jersey City, driving through Newark, thinking about when I would be where I am today because I was going through that process then to get to where I am now, taking the praxis. I was still doing Uber at the time, failing, trying it again, it's still doing Uber, right? So we have to, we have to really learn how to love those moments. And this is something that I've said before, I'll say it again, learn how to fall in love with the challenge, right? I learned how to fall in love with the challenge of, of driving, doing Uber for the moment. Learn how to fall in love with the challenge of doing phone sales at Dish Network. Falling in love with the challenge of teaching, right? It's challenging. Last year was my most difficult year. I was balancing a number of things. And as long as we continue to continue, <laughs> that's really... <laughs> all it comes down to just continue to continue that's it Love you it. give up there's nothing else there's nothing that could come from giving up oh so that's it that's all i have to say right now that's a lot and that's when i say a lot is depth to what you said yeah. it's just keeping it going mm -hmm. not dropping and if you drop the ball pick it back up yeah. and keep going <laughs> yeah. you know it, it it's when you drop it and keep it there is where the where the issue lies so yeah i appreciate your time i always enjoy we need to always record our conversations <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh yeah. i love them like i do like i look forward to them so i i really do appreciate just your insight in general like over the years that i've known you You've always been, I've always learned from you, always. I, I, I try to apply what I've learned from you. Uh, I am not a social media person. This is a, a result of you. Um, but, I, but I'm so grateful. People come into your life for a very specific reason. Yeah. And you're, it's your job to be aware enough and receptive enough to allow them to be of service. And may God allow for me to be one for you as well, because you have definitely been a service for me. So I appreciate just your insight, your depth, your curiosity, Absolutely. all of who you are. I mean, that means a lot coming from a doctor, Dr. <laughs> Chuck, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. thank you. So we had a great time today. I hope you guys have um, found this conversation quite enlightening as I have. And so we will see you next time and Aquase will be hanging out um you'll see him soon so we'll check yes. we'll check you guys later yes take care everyone all right guys bye bye <laughs>